Good morning. This is our second week in This Is Us series, and the second week in which we are talking about marriage. So I want to remind you again, if you're single and you're here today, listen up. You don't know what God has for you in the future. Also remind you that some of these principles are true of all relationships. So we dial in today, not just for our marriage, but for all of our relationships. And boys and girls, once a month, We have our elementary students in with us, and we're always glad to have them, especially glad today. We have them in because we want to give our teachers a break, but also because occasionally we want our boys and girls to know what we do here on Sunday mornings. I'm going to do today three joke sets. So I'm going to tell three sets of jokes. Now, I hope that you got a ballot if you're uh, one of our elementary students today, and I want you to check which one of the joke sets you like the most. Three different times in the sermon, I'm going to stop and tell some jokes, and you're going to have to judge me, set one, set two, set three, which is the the one you like the most. And for the rest of you, I'm going to expect some enthusiastic response to these jokes. Got very little in the 9 a.m. service, but admittedly, this is the smarter, better-looking service, so I'm expecting an awful lot more from this service. So here's a joke set number one, boys and girls, if you're ready. Why are bananas good at gymnastics? They do great banana splits. How can you tell they do great banana splits, he said. How can you tell the ocean is friendly? It waves. It waves, he said. Which runs faster, hot or cold? Hot. Everybody can catch a cold. How do athletes stay cool during the game? They sit near the fans. What did one eye say to the other eye? Politely, may I add, something between us smells. That was joke set number one, boys and girls. We start with key three today. And to kick us off, I'm going to ask if you would in a sec to stand up. And I'm going to go through a series of phrases. And when you know what word I'm talking about, you can sit down. So let's stand up together. All right, as soon as you know what I'm talking about, you can sit down. Number one, this word that I'm trying to come up with. This word is a term sometimes used in golf. Don't sit down. There are a lot of golf terms. So this term is sometimes used in golf. Number two, all of you SAT people, this word is a synonym for mendacity. Not a soul. All right, number three, many of you will get this one. This word is what the father of our country could not do when he chopped down the cherry tree. Okay. This word finally is, it rhymes with try and it starts with an L. Okay, so it's lie. You got that. You may be seated. All right, key number three for doing marriage better is speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. And this is going to be applicable to all of our relationships. And I'm going to read this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I want you to hear both the context and then the payoff. The, the call to speak the truth in love, and I'm going to read from the screen because you'll have the same uh, language that I do. Then we will no longer be infants, spiritually infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Turns out that telling the truth is a really big deal to God. He includes it in his list of top 10 best ways to live. 
He spells out several times for us when he talks about relationships in general. He talks about speaking the truth. Here are three things to know about this speak truth in love from the context of this passage, the one that we just read, this paragraph. In this passage, speaking truth in love is contrasted with an atmosphere where people are being tossed around by false teaching and by doubt. In other words, speaking truth in love builds stability, emotionally and spiritually. Speaking truth in love builds stability in our lives. Secondly, it's fitting then to recognize that in this passage, speaking truth in love complements spiritual growth and unity. So if we want to see our partners promoted spiritually and emotionally, we want to be building unity in our marriages, we will be speaking truth in love. Thirdly, it's critical for our church relationships, or what Paul calls the body of Christ. That means it's also critical for our marriage settings. This is a general principle that's good for all relationships. Okay, so I want to talk for a few minutes about how to apply this idea of speaking the truth in love, because this is where the payoff is. But I'm going to say again what I said last week, just so you know going in. This morning will be a little bit more like a marriage seminar than it is our usual conversations on Sunday morning. So I've kind of packed three conversations, lengthy conversations that Diane and I sometimes will have with couples or we've done at retreats before. I'm packing three talks into one. So you get three for the price of one today, and I'm going to give you a lot of information in a hurry. So I'm apologizing in advance. It's going to come at you like a fire hose, but I want you to get this. I've cut some stuff out and I've cut some work time out, and I'm going to try to give you all of the information. So here we go. Speak the truth in love. How do we apply this key to our marriage? What does it look like to speak the truth in love? We have to be honest and recognize that this can be difficult to live out. Many of us have a hard time expressing the truth well. Some of us, on the one hand, want to retreat. We like to live in denial or we like to avoid the truth. We don't like to speak the truth if the truth is hard. We hate confrontation. However, we need to be reminded that if we do not express our hurt, our disappointment, our frustration, it doesn't go away, it goes underground, and it does us more damage in the long run. On the other hand, there are those of us, and you know who you are, who will occasionally like to use the truth as a club. In fact, at times, you can live through your anger. You get all fired up to get fired up. You like to fight. We need to be reminded that if the truth cannot be received, then it's unhelpful both to the receiver and ultimately to the giver. We don't get what we want. So, how do we speak the truth in love? Let's look at two different kinds of situations that require truth speaking to help us unpack this key. So here are two situations that require us to speak truth in love. One, when we've been hurt or when we've been frustrated or when we're disappointed. Ouch. We need to speak truth in love. A second kind of situation into which we need to speak truth in love is when we have objective criticism of our loved one, our spouse. Take the first situation. When we've been hurt, disappointed, or frustrated, how do we express our hurt, disappointment, frustration well? I'm going to give you a two-step process. This isn't genius. It's obvious. I just want to break it down so it's really clear to us. Because as with most things in our spiritual and emotional lives, it's not easy, but it's not complicated. So, number one, we've got to allow God to show us our real concern. If we're going to speak the truth in love, we've got to allow God to show us our real concern. Here's what I mean. Counselors are almost unanimous in telling us that anger is a secondary emotion. It's almost always our response to hurt, disappointment, or frustration. It's not the main thing. Some of us don't process our feelings very effectively. We don't really know how to feel, especially when we're angry. 
It may be that we were raised in a family where it was not okay to feel at all. Others of us were hurt so deeply at some point that we cut off our feelings or we cut ourselves off from our feelings. Others of us just aren't practiced in being in touch with our feelings. Whatever the reason, the distance between our feelings and our awareness of our feelings can lead to all kinds of problems, and you know this. For example, some of us become professional passive aggressives. We live with a heart full of hurt, but we've trained ourselves not to express it, so we let it leak out in constant drip-by-drip unhelpful and underhanded encounters. I heard a counselor tell me the story of a wife, and it became a problem in their relationship. The wife was always late. This was a big deal to the husband. And the wife was always late. Turns out, through therapy, they realized the husband was very, very controlling. And this was one of the ways that the wife maintained some control in the relationship, by being late. These kinds of emotions are often at the root of sarcasm. Those of you who live on sarcasm, it may very well be that you're toting around a lot of hurt, a lot of disappointment that you have not dealt with. I want you to listen for a second to the end of Psalm 139. Here's what the psalmist says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and and lead me in the way everlasting. We have to allow God to show us what's in our heart. We have to allow God to show us our real concern. Recognizing our feelings for some of us may involve an occasional emotional checkup. You and I need to be praying these kinds of prayers. God, who am I angry at? God, what conversation or what situation or what person am I wanting to avoid? God, what habit or pattern am I allowing in my life that's really evidence that I've got a a spiritual flu and There's other stuff going on underneath the surface. So we have to let God show us our real concern. And secondly, once we're aware, we have to admit our real issue to ourselves and to others with grace and vulnerability. I told you this wasn't complicated. As a side note, we have to remember that as we become aware of our feelings, our first feeling may not be the real issue, as we were just talking about. We might be angry when the real problem is hurt. So how do I get to the real feeling? Well, perhaps you need to talk it through with someone you trust, or it's always a good idea to continue to pray about it, but I want you to know if you're asking that question, you're in a good place. That's a good starting point. How do I get to the real deal? But once God has shown us the real concern, we have to admit it to ourselves and to the one we love. This is the speaking part, right? And we have to admit it with grace and vulnerability. This is the in love part. So I'm going to give you an acronym that I've used before. We don't have time to work through this. I wish we did. I'd have you turn as couples to one another, although not all of you are couples. But I'd have you turn as couples to one another and do some exercise around this. We don't have time. You can do it later. But here's a gimmick for you. I want you to remember a gimmick. When you think of speaking with grace and vulnerability, I want to encourage you to think fab. Fab. F-A-B. I want you to focus on your feelings. I want you to avoid absolutes. And I want you to be brief. It doesn't need a sermon. I want you to think fab. Focus on your feelings, avoid absolutes, and be brief. Let me give you some examples. You always criticize my mother. And that comes with a a mini sermon, doesn't it? Instead, how about if we say, it hurts my feelings when you put my mother down. Focus on my feelings, avoid absolutes, and be brief. How about this? You never spend time with the kids. And that comes with more than a mini-sermon. And you know what they grow up to when their father doesn't spend time with them? 
Instead, how about if we say, I feel like you don't spend enough time with the kids and it makes me feel insecure about our family. Or, you're always an idiot. How about this instead? I really don't understand why you do that. It hurts my feelings when you do. Fab, be mindful whenever you speak the truth. Hurt has to be the substance of what we say and not the fuel. Okay, let's give a second situation. Second situation is when we have objective criticism, when we have a concern about our spouse that's legit. We have something that is bothersome to us. We know it is to others. It does damage to them. It's done damage in our relationship. How do we talk about this? I want you to imagine Priya comes home from work one day and says, my secretary Betty has complained to our boss about how harsh and critical I am. She's so sensitive. I don't know how to handle this. What does her husband do if he agrees with Betty? Or I want you to imagine that over many years, Donna has seen her husband refuse to put himself or any of his ideas forward, even in the most benign conversations. She knows that it's insecurity, so she's always hesitated to say anything, but it, it bothers her because she knows it hurts his relationships and it's hurting his career. How does Donna address her concern? She has an objective concern, objective criticism. This kind of situation reminds me of the story of a husband and wife are getting ready for bed one night, and the wife is standing in front of a full-length mirror, taking a hard look at herself. She says, you know, dear, I look in the mirror, and, and I see an old woman. My face is all wrinkled. My hair is gray. My shoulders are hunched over. I've got fat legs, and my arms are flabby. She turns to her husband and says, tell me something positive to make me feel better about myself. And he studies hard, thinks for a moment, and in his softest, most thoughtful voice, he says, well, there's nothing wrong with your eyesight. <laughs> this is not necessarily how you want to deal with objective criticism. Just as with hurt and disappointment, objective criticism must be presented in love. This ties back to our first key, right? If you were here last week. You remember our first key, keep your purpose before you. Remember our highest purpose as husbands and wives is to be an instrument for promoting our partner's spiritual and personal welfare. If we're going to promote one another, we will have to bring constructive criticism. If we're going to promote one another, we'll have to bring constructive criticism. But it will have to be done in love or it cannot be received. Again, this is often a challenge for us. Some of us, remember, we hesitate to ever speak the truth. Ultimately, and let's be as critical as we can, ultimately, those of us over here just don't have the courage to love our spouses enough to speak up. And then some of us have the opposite problem. We tend to be harsh, and we may even end up using the truth as a club. What we're really communicating over here is, why aren't you different? When we have to bring constructive criticism, let's use another acronym. Let's do our part. Nothing more. Let's don't do God's part. Let's do our part. So when you've got to bring some constructive criticism, let me give some helpful hints. Seriously, use this. Let's do our part. P, get someone to pray over you when you're going to bring this to your loved one. Ask somebody you trust to pray about it for you. A, make sure your concern is active. It is not helpful when you want to bring constructive criticism for you to say, seven years ago when we were, and then three, three years ago the same thing, and you repeated it the next year. That's not helpful. Make your concerns active concerns. Third, rehearse your criticism. In other words, talk about it beforehand with someone you trust who will not judge you or your spouse. Develop a strategy, an approach for discussing it. Do this healthily. Don't just spill. Don't just vomit. 
And fourth, how about T? Set a time for discussing your concern, a time that works for both of you. Don't wait until you're at your worst moment. It's 1.30 in the morning, you're both exhausted, and you have just gotten into a, a terrible argument that began with directions on how to get home from your friend's house at dinner. And it ended up with who's the most controlling and why you don't ever listen. That's not the time for you to bring your constructive criticism. Set a time for it. If you were here last week, you'll remember we interviewed Dean and Althea over here. They talked about a, a family forum that they have where they actually sit down and discuss their stuff with one another. Do your part, and God will do his. Now, if you've been listening, you may be thinking, pause for dramatic effect, this takes a lot of work. You may be thinking, yes, it does. Here's the truth. I'm reminding you of what you already know. If you've been married for more than six months, you know this. Those of you who've been married 25 years, longer, you really know this. I'm going to remind you. It does take work. You're going to do work either way. You either work on the front end and make it healthy, or you're going to do work on the back end when the damage has been done. And maybe things are ending. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. All right. Joke set number two. Boys and girls, you ready? What is a robot's favorite snack? Computer chips. Did you hear the joke about the cookie? Oh, it's crummy. What do you get when you cross a spider with a computer, a web page? Knock, knock. Dishes. Dishes the police come out with your hands up. Dishes the police come out with your hands up. What did one cannibal say to the other after eating a clown? Did something taste funny to you? I like that one. <laughs> Key number four for doing marriage better. Practice your relational posture. I'm trying to say that as provocatively as possible because I want you to remember it. Practice your relational posture. I'm about to go through a lot of information, but it's really good stuff. This is the principle that the Bible goes to most often when it talks about marriage. And it may be one of the things in the Bible that's most misunderstood. So today I'm hoping that we can unwrap this and uh, look at a passage that's come under, honestly, a lot of criticism. I hope we can defend this passage and explain it in a way that we'll all understand and walk away with a, a, a better grasp. That's not even a word, but you know what I mean. I want you to go old school with me and stand out of reverence for God's Word. We're going to read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. Wish we could stop there. Would have solved some of my problems, but we can't. Not because of Diane, because of me. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as this church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. It's a big deal, in other words. In everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother 
and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You may be seated. Some of you have heard this teaching from me before, but it bears repeating, and others of you have not. This passage has come under criticism over the years for being sexist and out of date. How is it that husbands are to love their wives, but wives have to submit to their husbands? So let's explain what's going on here and hopefully in the process defend this passage against its critics. Wives, in this passage, God requires you to submit to your husband and to respect him. I want you to notice four things about this. First, the requirement to submit is given to wives. The whole passage would have a different feel if husbands were told to bring their wives into submission. In some of your cases, that would be impossible. But in fact, wives, you are told to offer submission and respect. Husbands, you're not addressed in this paragraph at all. The only way you and I figure in here is as a receptor. So it doesn't seem like it's legitimate for us to ever complain that our wives are not submitting to us or respecting us. Evidently, the Bible does not think that's our concern. Secondly, I want you to notice that you wives are required to offer submission, not obedience. Obedience is commanded of slaves and children. Obedience has to do with absolute acquiescence. According to the Bible, we are to obey God. This means we are to do what God says without resistance. In the case of obedience, one who is subordinate in power and position follows with absolute agreement the dictates of the one who is over them. But submission is different. Submission has to do with order and function. These are functional ideas. Wives, in your marriage, submission is your function. It is your place in the marriage, and it's your primary concern. Submission defines your relational posture. It's how you stand in the marriage. This is not about power or position, but about function. We will have more to say about that in a moment. Thirdly, let's notice that this requirement comes with a motivation. Wives, submit to your husbands. As to the Lord, Paul says, as to the Lord, not as if he were the Lord, this means you submit to your husband because you want to honor the Lord. In other words, submit to your husband as a way of submitting to the Lord. In respecting your husband, you please God. Why is this so? Here's the critical part. You please God by submitting to your husband because you are living in concert with God's design. Let me explain. Some who have read this passage have wrongly accused Paul of sexism. As one Bible scholar put it, quote, we cannot deny that behind this passage lies a conception of society which reserves the first place for the man, end quote. But this view fails to see the intent of the passage. In fact, it may be that sexism is behind the criticism of the passage and not behind the passage at all. We read the passage through lenses that are colored by our experiences with sexism, which are pervasive. But if we remove those lenses, suddenly this teaching becomes breathtakingly clear and incredibly vitally important for the ebb and flow of our married lives. Remember, 
Ancient cultures as a whole tended to consider women to be little more than property. Christianity acknowledged women as co-heirs with Christ. In fact, it was this same author, the Apostle Paul, who said there are no longer any distinctions between male and female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. The surrounding culture refused to allow women any position except for beauty queen, prostitute or wife. Christianity made of its women leaders and teachers and prophetesses. Jews did not allow women to even study the Torah. Christianity encouraged women to learn and to grow. Well then, Ed, why is it that men get to love their wives but wives have to submit to their husbands? Again, let me say, I believe the question is at fault. I believe the problem lies in our way of reading the passage and not in the passage. As women, you don't want to be belittled or demeaned, and hopefully we as men are learning not to do that. But I believe the Bible is addressing something else altogether. As I said, this is not about power or position. This is about function and form. Remember, as I said, your submission to your husband as to the Lord gives you a motivation. Here's what I mean. Women, you are not required to respect your husbands because they are somehow better or more powerful than you or because they are your boss. You are to respect your husband because that's what your husband needs. That's how God designed him. You are to submit as a way of pleasing the Lord because in submitting to your husband, you are acting consistent with your husband's need and the way God made him. We men need love. We want tenderness. We want to know we are secure with you. We want intimacy. But more than that, we want to know our life matters. We want to know that we make a difference to you and in the world. This is how we're wired. That's often our point of insecurity. That's how we're designed. That's how you can be God's instrument in our lives. Stereotypes often become stereotypes because there's truth behind them. There's a reason that we say the fragile male ego. In many ways, we are fragile, ladies. We need your respect, and for that reason, God has called you to it. First of all, remember the requirement to submit is given to wives. Secondly, remember that it's a call to submit, not to obey. And thirdly, remember it comes with a motivation. Submit because he needs your respect. That's how he was designed, and that pleases Christ. And finally, God gives you the degree of submission in everything, he says. This means that your submission is complete. There is no time in your relationship with your husband in which your relational posture is not submission and respect. Does this mean that I can't disagree with my husband? Of course not. When your husband is wrong, I hope you'll be disagreeing. But even in that, your emotional posture will be submission and respect. Does that mean my husband ultimately makes all the important decisions? Not in my house it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that my husband is really the boss? This is a completely unchristian way of seeing things. There is no boss. There are only fellow sinners loved by God mutually serving one another. Well, what does it mean, Ed? What does it look like? How do I act if I'm going to be this submissive wife? Here's the crazy thing. The Bible doesn't answer that question. Evidently, being submissive looks different in different relationships. God isn't giving you a set of behaviors. He's giving you an attitude. And that attitude will look different depending on your makeup and personality. Some of you are quiet and easygoing. So submissiveness will look quiet and easygoing in you. Others of you are definitely not quiet and you're not easygoing. 
Submission will look different on you. You are not called to be something that you are not, but you are called to be submissive. Not because the man in your life is preeminent, but because the man in your life is needy. He needs respect, and it's your charge to give it. Husbands, you are required to love your wives. There are three observations to make about God's requirement to you, and they're big. First of all, God's requirement for you comes with a standard. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So Christ's love for the church is consistently the picture of love that the New Testament gives us. 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is, colon, how, John? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what love is. Men, we have to undergo radical corrective surgery. We have believed a lie. We have been told that love is about moonlight and flowers with rich-toned violin accompaniment in the background. We've been led to believe that love equals passion and romance and sex. Passion and romance and sex are awesome, and they're all outcomes of love, but they are not what love is. Love is a choice to do what Christ did. And to make sure we get the point, God adds this intimidating phrase, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the second observation. I don't know about you, but to me, this one's a little scary. Apparently, the essence of the requirement given to us is that we choose to lay down our lives for our wives. This isn't about authority, men. You have no right to take up authority in your home. You have authority in your home. You need to know that. You have authority, men, but you don't take it up. Authority is given to you, first by God and then by your wife. And this is not the authority to exert power or will. This is the authority. The authority we've been given is the authority to serve and to eventually die. That's what Christ did. When bullets are flying, you go first. In essence, God here tells us that our zealous promotion of our own desires and agenda, even of our promotion of our own well-being, must be replaced by a zealous promotion of our beloved. This is how she will know that we love her when we lay down our life for her. Let me get at this another way to emphasize the point. Let's use conflict as a situational example. What should you do in conflict? If you're in conflict today, I suggest that God's command to you husbands is to lay down your life for your wife. Lay down your right and your need to be right. Figure out as best you can what she's saying, what is she asking for, and why. How can you help advance her agenda and not your own? Where have you been wrong, and where have you promoted yourself and not her? That's the starting place for you and me. I'm not saying your wife is always right. I'm not saying that your feelings and your agenda don't matter. They do. I'm saying that the way in which you approach the conflict has to be defined by laying down your life. That's your relational posture. That's your function in the marriage. Let me repeat myself. I suspect that those of us who have been familiar with this teaching from Paul have believed that the business of us being leaders in the home is about authority. It is. But there are two important things that we should keep in mind. First of all, authority is not ours to take. We don't take authority over our wives. She gives us authority, and she gives us authority because of her devotion to Christ. And secondly, under Christ, authority doesn't equal being the boss. We have to remember that under Christ, authority equals service and responsibility and ultimately death. 
So we place our hopes and our dreams and our desires and our agenda under hers. We promote her from now and on. I know that the overwhelming majority of you husbands love your wives. As best you know how, I really believe in many cases, if some great gesture were called for, you would give it. I believe if you were asked literally to sacrifice your life for your wives, you would. I believe if you had to endure pain for her, you would. But what we're called to do is much harder than that. We're called to do that not in one great gesture. We're called to do that every day in small degrees. We are called to give ourselves up for her because that's what she needs. Your wife needs to be loved. That is how God made her. Men, your desire to lead a life that matters, a desire which at least God has, in part God has placed in you, that takes second place. Look, your wife wants to make a difference too. She wants to matter. She also wants to make an impact, but more than that, she wants to feel secure. She wants to be cherished and cared for, not because she can't care for herself, but simply because she is designed to be the recipient of your care. This is how God made her. And when you run into trouble in your marriage, I guarantee you that most of the time it's because she does not feel your love. You have not given love in the way that she can receive it. So give it to her. Lay down your life for her. Give her your care. From now on and through the rest of your life, that's your choice to lay down your life. Do not ever let that grow cold or stale. How dreadful for you and me if Christ let his love for us grow cold and stale. And that's the standard. Thirdly, I want you to hear the end toward which your love for your wife points. The requirement to love has as its goal, we go back to key number one, to make your wife holy. The goal of your love is not to make your wife happy. That's an unattainable goal for you, and it's no part of your requirement. There will be happiness, and there will be sadness in your lives together, and much of that is out of your control. And if you've been married more than four years, you already know that. If you've been married 25, you are schooled in this. But you can make your aim to help her grow in holiness, and God will honor that aim. And by doing that, you help her to experience Christ's peace and presence even in times of sorrow. The requirement to love your wife has as its goal to make her holy. Remember key number one, keep our purpose before us. This is about keeping our purpose before us. Now listen, you cannot do this. You cannot encourage your wife's holiness if you do not yourself have a connection with God through Christ. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm glad you're here. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a living relationship with God that nurtures you, a connection with God that gives you strength, which you can then pass on to your wife. You must have this. And those of us who have been walking in connection with Christ for a long time and have known the power of that connection and what it does to our relationships, we also know what happens when that relationship grows dim, when we allow that relationship to weaken. We know the dissonance that's created in these relationships. You know what happens when sin or fatigue or selfishness begin to define your relational posture toward your wife. Don't do it. If we had time, we would spend some time this morning having you men recommit to this. You need to do some work this week, men. You need to re-up. You need to recommit to this. That's where it starts, not here. It starts here. And if you don't have that connection, you need that connection. You need this. He continues, and he elaborates on the imagery of what Christ does for his church, and he builds on the stated purpose of making her holy. He says this, to present her to himself it's a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. And this is exactly where I get into trouble. 
Again, this is an amplification of my purpose in, in loving my wife, Diane. I'm to make her holy, and I'm to present her as such before God. But for me, sometimes, when I see Diane's stains or wrinkles or blemishes, and she has a couple, I know she seems perfect, she almost is, but you don't live with her. When I see her blemishes, sometimes I get frustrated, or I get put out, or I get hurt, or I get angry. Over time, I've been able to see them with, let's say, more and more clarity. But these character foibles, these stains, and these wrinkles, according to God, if you miss everything else, men, don't miss this. They should not be the cause of my frustration or my hurt. That's why I've been called to the relationship. Because of those things. I am to press those things out of her life. I'm to encourage that in her. And not by manipulation, and not by coercion, and not by force, and not by anger. Those things don't work. You already know that. I'm to press those things out of her life through love, by laying down my life for her. So now my assignment is to promote Diane with the same zeal with which I've been in the habit of promoting myself. And by the way, I know my character foibles, and I know my blemishes, and I'm amazingly able to forgive those. Men love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. And remember one more thing. When you've done all of this, you have not done what Christ did. When you've done all of that, you have not done what Christ did. You're giving yourself for the one that loves and respects you. He gave himself for a bride that scorned and cursed him and eventually hung him on a tree to die. So the call on our lives, men, is unimaginably high. Go do it. Go love your wives. All right, joke set number three, boys and girls, and we're almost done. Where do cows go on dates? Movies. What did the bottle of dressing say to the person who opened the refrigerator door? Shut the door, I'm dressing! Why do you never invite Cinderella to play soccer? She runs away from the ball. Why was the computer cold? It forgot to close its windows. Why is the math book so unhappy? Full of problems. Okay, so we need to go home. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here if they would. I'm going to give you final key really quick. So I'll just give you the thumbnail version of final key. Let's pray together. What we were going to do is just brief biblical survey to talk about how important prayer is, how pervasive it is, the call of prayer on our lives. And then we we're going to take a, a little bit of a deeper dive. We we're going to snooze into a few passages that tell us some of the things that prayer does for us individually and relationally. And you guys were going to be, you know, moderately impressed. But then I was going to trot out a statistic that's mind-blowing. I was going to tell you something that was amazing, and you were going to remember that part of it. I was going to say to you, you know, there are a lot of things that we think might impact the success or the lack of success in our marriages, even religious things. But to our surprise and amazement, and those of us who do this professionally, our disappointment, many of those things don't make any difference at all. Regular church attendance, families that attend church weekly, no difference in the divorce rate between those folks and the people who don't attend church. People who come from religious background, no difference in marital success. People who have the right belief system, they believe exactly like Ed does, which is, of course, the perfect belief system. People who have the right belief system, no difference 
in the success of their marriage. There's one thing that they found that makes a dramatic difference in the success of marriage, praying together. Couples that pray together regularly, their marriages are stronger and more successful. Final key, pray together. Let's pray. Father, we were humbled by your truth, and I ask that you would continue to marinate us in this and that you would speak to us and that we would do the work that is required of us. I pray for marriages here at Gateway. I pray that you would bless them. I pray for those that have been at this a long time, Lord. I pray for a season of refreshing and newness and and increased depth. And for those of us who are fairly new into this, Lord, I pray for that you would enrich us, that you would grow us up quickly, that you would train us how to speak the truth in love to one another with grace and vulnerability. And I pray that you would help us to adopt constantly our relational posture. And Lord, teach us how to pray together. That's not easy. Teach us how to do that and give us the time. That's the biggest thing. Help us. Equip us. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing a song and then go home. If you've got some work that you need to do today and you need to talk to someone, don't leave without doing some work. There'll be someone over here to talk to you in a couple of minutes. So please engage with that. Let's stand together. So let's end today. It's been a good day. Thanks for coming. Hey, if this is your first time with us, we were, we're psyched to have you. And we're honored that you would take the time. Let's end today by making a declaration of faith. I'll build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. This is what we've been talking about. You know what love is. It's the choice to lay down our lives. That's what he did. So we're going to make this as the declaration that we're ending today with. I'll build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. I'll put my trust in you alone, and I'll not be shaken. Let's declare that before we go home.
lot of new faces. Make sure to meet somebody on the way out. Uh, my name is Jordan. If you don't know me, if you've never met me, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, I pray that you would take peace and love with you this week. Go in peace.